Well, a little confession. One of my favorite, this is, those of you who know me, and I'm going to take my glasses off here for a second so I can, don't sweat so much yet. One of my favorite distractions is racing. And racing, I mean cars, all right? So, I've driven some, not much, but driven a little bit. But most of it, what my distractions are spectating. I've I've spectated probably since I was, well, <laughs> I guess before I could drive, but that's soon after I drove. It started in the 70s and 80s, and there used to be a little racetrack on the east side of town called Mesa Marin. It wasn't so little, but it was called the fastest track. It was the fastest track in the west, fastest west track of the west, half mile track in the west. There we go. I got it right. And when I went there, I always rooted for a certain, not a certain guy, but a certain brand, all right? I was, I always rooted for drivers who drove Chevrolets. Don't, no hiss, no booze. Dennis, I'm sorry, just go away. You know, from my earliest days, I've always been partial to bow ties. It's just, they're so good. Now, I don't know what caused this. My dad, he drove a Ford. I learned to drive an F-150, not an F-150, an F-100, 63 Ford truck, three-speed. I mean, not on the tree, but on the, on the column. Not the column, not on, the, on the floor. And it was, it was great. My dad drove Fords his whole life, even... Maybe that's why I didn't like them. I don't know. I like my dad. I love my dad. But if I have a choice, I drive a Chevy or a GM product. Well, again, I'm, this is full confession. As the years went by, and I kept going to, to Mesa Marin, a local driver named Kevin Harvick started coming up through the ranks. He went to North High School, and he was, he was aggressive. I mean... I could relate to that. that was, that's cool, man. He drove hard. He hit the spots where he needed to hit, and he wasn't scared to bump somebody out of the way. It was, it was good, but you guessed it. He drove a Chevy. Well, he eventually made it to the Cup Series. That is the, if you're a football player, that would be the NFL. If you're a baseball player, that'd be MLB. Well, he made it to the Cup Series, and he, it's the highest level of NASCAR, and he was really good, all right? He was one of the best drivers, or well, I can't even say that anymore. He, he was one of the best drivers. He hasn't won in a couple years. And he won often. And he won some big races. And of course, I bought his merchandise. I had a sweatshirt that, that I wore very regularly. I had always had a new hat on. You know, I sported. I had the swag, man. I had everything. And then in 2014, Kevin Harvick went from Rich, Richard Childress Racing to Stuart Haas Racing, you don't really care about this, but this is the year that he won a championship. He finally won. And what was he driving? He was driving a Chevy. Of course he was. I was so happy. At least until 2017, when I was betrayed. <laughs> Kevin Harvick would now drive a Ford. And you know what? I haven't worn a piece of merchandise since. That's telling, isn't it? I mean, your favorite. I mean, he's still my favorite driver, but I'm torn. If he wins, and it's a big if now, 
I can't cheer for him that much because he drives a blue oval. He's wearing their colors. He's part of the Blue Oval crew. Now, you might be asking, and I'm trying to bring it around here, what does this have to do whether you and I are really a Christian? Well, I think the question is, and is of what uniform you're wearing. What insignia you wear on your helmet helps us to think about sin in the life of a professing Christian. Well, you would get, well, how so? What do, you, what do you mean by that? If you call yourself a Christian, you've changed teams. You're no longer on the team where you once, for us, where you once played or where you once lived. You've changed teams. You put on a new uniform, and to have new team colors, it tells everyone, or it should tell everyone around you, that you've changed your allegiances. You no longer have the same allegiance that what you once had. But what do you think of someone who puts on a new uniform and continues to play or in my illustration, to drive for their former team. What do you think of them? What do you think of if somebody puts on the uniform, but they, they're still driving for the other person? That's what we're doing as Christians whenever we sin. We're playing for the old team, even though we now have a new uniform. Now hear me. This, again, is a sermon that is very direct. It is, again, I only have a certain amount of time left where I can deliver to you folks what I have, and it's important. For someone who claims to follow Christ, to sin is paramount to treason. It is taking Satan's side in rebellion against God while claiming to be on God's side. And please hear me. Understand, and I understand, and I do. All Christians continue to struggle with sin. We all do. But the Scriptures suggest that if your life can be characterized by a casual and comfortable attitude towards sin, you need to stop and think, what team you're really on. Never mind what uniform you're wearing. Who are you playing for? Who are you driving for? If it's mostly for the other team, maybe you're not on their roster. Or maybe, maybe you're still on their roster. Put a different way, you're not a Christian if you love sin. The sermon series that I'm currently in the middle of is called, Am I Really a Christian? And it's taken from the book by the same, name, same title written by Mike McKinley. I get much of what I'm speaking to you today from him. Well, going back to this morning's topic of you're not a Christian if you love sin, nowhere is it any clearer than the third chapter of 1 John. And I ask you to turn to 1 John. Now you know you need to go to 1 John chapter 3. 
And I really suggest and I really ask and I hope that you open your Bibles, whether it be in front of you on a phone, on a tablet, or paper, open them up and look. I'm going to read much today, but I want you to actually look at it and hear because it's going to get in your brain, in your, in your heart a little more if you do it both ways. 1,022 if you need a Bible a blue one should be in front of you on the pew. The author, John, the apostle, he wrote this book close to six decades after Christ's earth, earthly ministry. He didn't write concerning the team. I don't know, they, I'm sure they had chariots, but I don't think they were wearing Ford chariot gear. He wrote about family. That was his, the way that he wrote about this. And he wrote that some people are either God's children, God being their father, or some are Satan's children and are part of his people. There are no in-between. Maybe that's what we need to understand too. There are no gray areas here. It's black and it's white. And one way, the ways to determine which family we belong to is by taking stock of your life, even more specifically, the sin in your life. I read beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3, and this is the word of the Lord. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. May God bless the reading of His Word. Now understand, sin is the devil's forte. He's, he's the author. He's good at it. He's God's enemy. And we just read he's been sinning from the beginning. Now even before the earth or the Garden of Eden, Satan had fallen. But ever since the Garden of Eden, when man was placed there by the Lord Himself, He's been actively spreading the sin, spreading sin throughout the created world. He lied and He tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against, cosmic, against God's authority. They did. They committed cosmic treason. And this is called the fall. 
their, their sin spread to all following generations. We can thank Adam for our sin, but don't hold it against him because we would have done the same thing. Their sin, again, spread to all following, the following generation. Their children, Cain, murdered Abel, and then it became even worse. By the time we get to Genesis 6, and I, and I quote Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil. That's all he could think of. We go from the very highs of creation when God says it is very good to six chapters later to God destroying the earth by flood. That's the fruit of Satan's labor. He has been sinning since the beginning and he continues today. But the arrival of Jesus was God's decisive blow against his adversary. According to verse 8 of John 3, the reason that Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He says it another way in verse 5, he appeared in order to take away sins. And you know what, church? He was successful in doing that. By his atoning death, his, the problem of sin was dealt with. He had no sin of his own. We read that earlier. We've looked at that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, over and over and over again. We understand that. He had no sin of his own to pay for, which allowed him to take the sins of those who believe on him and pay for them completely. They're gone. Romans 8 declares, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because Jesus took our place, listen, Satan no longer has any basis on which he can accuse us before God because our sins have been tossed, as it were, into the deepest ocean. It means they're gone, never to be brought up again. And that's because our sins have been blotted out. They've been removed. We are no longer children of the devil if we are truly Christ followers. We have a new identity, a new family. And that's why John tells us to be amazed at God's kindness. And we see that in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I might be asking for an amen here. Thank you. We're no longer Satan's. We belong to God. We're not darkness any longer, as it says in Ephesians, we're light. We're, underneath, we're not underneath the power of Satan any longer, but controlled by the power of God through His Spirit. Those Spirit, the river of living water coming out of us, that's what we have. As Ephesians tells us, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him to be seated us and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Which means 
Being a Christian involves a radical change of identity. We've been changed. What I'm getting at this is, is this. The Bible tells us there are only two kinds of people. Again, so I'm right, this, so we're black and white. I want to make that equal so both of you can feel okay. We're either servants of Satan or servants of the Lord. Not either. Going back to the uniform analogy, it's one jersey or the other. You can only drive for one team. How you tell which jersey you're wearing is by the role that sin plays in your life. John wrote, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. What all of this means is this. Sin's power over God's children is broken. Let me say that again. Sin's power over God's children is broken. Sin is the distinguishing mark of the devil's child. I read this week, and I think some of us who were born on a farm or some of you have ranched before, like a brand on a cow. It's like it's the mark of ownership. Does God own you, or does Satan still own you? Look back at the first first John passage at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. The children of the devil make a practice of sinning because it's what their father, the devil, does. It's a family trait. How many of you have kids? And some of you do. You don't have to raise your hands, but I've seen you have kids, and you notice how you're, my goodness, that kid, he's acting just like I do. Scary thought, isn't it? That's the analogy John uses. Well, before we followed Christ, we were all slaves to sin. We were dead. Not just kind of alive, not on life support. We were dead. We cannot do otherwise because sin is a part of who we are. Now, this is, I'm going to make Bud Gonzalez happy here. This is known as total depravity. It's not that Bud is totally depraved, believe me. But he says I need to be, speak a little more Calvinistic. I don't like the word Calvinistic because I like to think biblical. But total depravity, this is not to say that unbelievers are completely wicked and apart from, what, from Christ we could do nothing but evil. No, it doesn't mean that. We know some people who are not Christians who do some nice things. Not everything that they do is evil. But what it means is instead our plight before Christ is that sin, selfishness, pride, and greed is a driving and controlling force. That's why we do what we do before we came to Christ. It's all about us. It's all about what we can get. And sin, it cannot be resisted. It's operate, an operating principle of human life apart from Christ. Jesus taught the same thing in John 8. When he, when he said this in chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The bottom line was this. The crowd sinned because they wanted to do. That's what they wanted to do. But it was their father's desire. The opposite is now true for Christians. When you were transformed from the devil's family and adopted into God's, God's family, your relationship to sin changes. Before, your motivation was controlled by your desire to sin. Can't help it. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Now we live by God's Spirit. He's inside you, and because of that, sin does not have the same power to control or, or to move us. Its power is broken. Let the Scriptures explain. Would you turn to Romans 6? Romans chapter 6, 942 in the Blue Bibles. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In its place, now as a new man or, or a new woman, the man now is dead to sin but alive to God, continuing it at verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument of righteous, for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Now hear me again, sin is inconsistent with the new Christian identity. Remember, a Christian is someone who has changed teams. We're not on the old team anymore. We are on the new team. Paul just told his believers not to sin, but what I want you to hear is what he is not saying. He says, he's not saying pretend to be someone you're not. Just force it out. He's not saying that. Again, he is not telling us to pretend to be someone we're not. No, the opposite. Play for the team that has put you on their roster. He wants you to live, to do in everyday life what you already are in Christ. You're already a new creature. That's why he asks at the beginning of chapter 6, if you're still there, I hope you are, chapter 6, verse 1, are, do we continue, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you, we, a Christian, are no longer controlled by sin, then, then what is the controlling principle here? What's actually controlling us? It's what biblical scholar Thomas Schreiner calls a new obedience. 
And what he means is this, and I quote, Christians are not saved or justified by this new obedience, but their salvation will manifest itself in concrete ways in this new obedience. Again, we aren't Christians because we do right. You're not saved by your works, but your works will show that you're saved. We need to understand what this obedience looks like. Negatively, that means in a, a negative concept, but not, not a bad thing. It means forsaking old sins. Positively, meaning new fruit that begins to appear. Well, let's look at the positive first, right? Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. It's to the right of Romans. Galatians chapter 5, page, what page is it? I had it written down for you. Page 975 in the Blue Bibles if you need to get there. Galatians 5.22, if you've been in church at all, you've heard this passage talked about many times, I'm sure. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That last verse, Paul didn't mince any words there. It's the Christian. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have done what? What have we done? We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that is you doing that personally. You're the one who crucifies that. Surely with God's help, with His Spirit's help. But we're the ones that have to put sin to death. It is the Christian themselves that has done this in the process of doing this. The opposite side of the coin, the Spirit is producing new fruit. And remember, we cannot do this on our own. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Have you ever heard this statement? True Christianity changes people? It does. It does. You must understand this. Christ appeared to take away sins, and He came to destroy the works of the evil one. And that means... There is no way to be a Christian and to continue loving the things that Christ hates and came to destroy. There's no way a child of God can continue to embrace sin which pleases the devil. Please hear me. This is why the New Testament writers warn those who continue to sin happily and smugly, 
those who continue in their disobedience to the Lord, who know that they're doing it and do it anyway and feel no guilt, who feel no shame. From 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. From Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, from Ephesians 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. For every one of these warning promise, warnings, promising that those who continue to practice these things will not enter the kingdom. There are no what-ifs. That's what's heartbreaking about liberal Christianity. Oh, say la vie, say la vie. Whatever will be, what will be. No, Christ came to die to take away sin. And again, we do not enter into Christ's kingdom by doing good things, but because we've come to Him, because you have come to Him in faith. It produces righteousness in you. If there is none, check yourself. Don't ignore the Spirit of God, what He is saying through His written Word. And I know, I know that we often make excuses and pretend that these sins are not that bad. We want to think that a profession of faith that I made as a child or that I made at youth camp. That's good enough. I said the words. I even lived the life for a while. But what does the fruit declare? What does the fruit declare? These passages are meant to be flashing red lights. Warning, don't enter here. Don't go here. Look. There are many gates to hell. There are many roads to hell, but there is one skinny, small gate that leads into the kingdom. Sin is incompatible with Christian, the Christian's new identity. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's go back to 1 John. Now 1 John chapter 2, though. 
1 John chapter 2. Page 1021 in the Blue Bibles, if you're following along. I know I talked about Shriner's obedience, the new obedience. Well, this is a neat, if we need a new obedience test, a test that doesn't lie, that isn't gender or race specific, but just plain and simple and to the point. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 4 is it. Whoever says, I know him, but not, does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the he here is talking about Christ. The test is for anyone who says, I know him. Is that you? I hope it is. I hope that everyone within the sound of my voice is, yes, I know Christ. Well, this test is for you. The test, it gets straight into the point. One question, do you keep Jesus' word and walk in the same way that he walked? If not, there needs to be some honest soul-searching. There needs to be some time spent to go back to the scriptural warnings that were given earlier because they could be very relevant to you. Well, as I was writing this, I've, you're probably saying to yourself, it sounds like to me, Danny, that you could be making an argument that I need to be perfect. Be perfect? In ourselves? No. No. What the Bible isn't saying is that a follower of Christ will never sin, fall, or stumble. It is not saying that. A person who has any self-awareness whatsoever knows that she or he sins all the time. Christians struggle with every kind of sin imaginable. I'm glad my wife is not here today to be able to, to rat me out. <laughs> She's recovering today from eyelid surgery, so... Because I can speak... A specific moments just this weekend where I've been ungrateful, I've been impatient, I've been irritable, I've been greedy, I've been lazy, and I've even been proud. And aren't you grateful? Enough about me, let's talk about you. Aren't you grateful that there's not a recording of your life that's plain? As you walk down a little video that's playing over and over that, oh, I saw what you did there. Oh, I saw what you did there. Oh, I saw what you did. And that's just our outward stuff. What about the inside? 
Nowhere in the scriptures does it, suggest, does it suggest that a follower of Jesus will live a life free from sin, though that is the goal. That is what we want to be. That's what we, we want to live for Christ. But we fall short. If you're still in 1 John, turn to chapter 1. First John chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Evidently, there were teachers in the first century church that claimed that they hadn't sinned after they had come to Christ. And there are some still today who claim that. Uh, newsflash, these people were and they are self-deceived. And the truth is that we just read, read the truth here in 1 John, did we not? By believing this of themselves, they made God out to be a liar since God Himself says everyone sins. Well, how do we reconcile these truths? I, I'm getting nervous here. Truth one, we're dead to sin and free from its power. That sin is incompatible, incompatible, I can say that, with our new identity. We're dead to sin. It's incompatible. This is who I am. But on the other hand, Scripture itself teaches that we continue to sin. <laughs> Want the answer? Turn back to 1 John 3. First John chapter 3, and here's what it says in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Second half of verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. For five years, I went to seminary. For three and a half years of those... I suffered through learning the original languages. And I say suffering because it was not easy. But the reason why I learned them, that I'm going to give you a little, inf little bit of insight today because of these verses. Our English Bibles that we have in front of us, they are amazingly accurate. They, they are so dead on 
if you only read these, these, the scriptures here, you're good to go. You're good to go. But as I was saying, the Greek, when you're reading Greek and Hebrew, in this in case Greek, some people use their learning to make them look smart. Now, by now, you know that I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I'm not trying to, to do that. But since we're talking about the difference between heaven and hell, you need to understand what the Greek word tenses are, the verb tenses. The verbs in each of these examples are written in what's called the present tense. Abides, keeps on, makes a practice, and so on. These verbs point to a continuous, ongoing action. Continually do these things. That When I think of them, I just think of what that particular sin is. The old disciple John, he, is, he isn't speaking about a person who falls into sin, who makes a mistake, who, who lives a life of righteousness, and then all of a sudden, boom, does something that's totally out of character. He's not speaking about that. It's when they live in it. You could say a person who consciously abides in it, deliberately keeps in it, and happily makes it a practice. What the Bible is saying is the pattern and direction of your day-to-day -day life, your normal conduct, will be one that will desire to love, seek, and obey Jesus. Not the devil. Please hear me. A Christian cannot be characterized by a lifestyle of sin. Now, See if we can agree on these things. Both Christians and non-Christians sin every day. Can we agree on that? Good, I see this. I'm not looking for no's. I'm, I'm just looking at the first three rows here because I still haven't put my glasses back on. Both Christians and non-Christians struggle to break bad habits. Yeah. Both fight to overcome patterns of weakness and failure. Oh, I don't like to say I fail. But we fight to overcome them, don't we? And sad but often true. Christians aren't the best people in terms of cumulative sins. By that I mean you can look at the lies of a non-Christian and often see selfishness, less anger, less pride than you would on the same day of a professing Christian. The question is, how can we tell the difference between a genuine Christian and one who claims to be a Christian and is deceived? Let's answer that with a parable of Jesus. Please turn to Luke chapter 15. Page 874 in your blue Bibles, if you're following along. Listen as I read the story. 
Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, sin, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I want to equate this story with how we think about how a, Christ, a Christian responds to sin. The young man was a sinner. He insulted his daddy. He more or less said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want, I'm not going to wait around for you to die. I want my stuff now. He insulted his father. He squandered his inheritance on reckless living, eventually ending up in the gutter. The situation is one that too many Christians have found themselves in. But I want us to think of three ways that the prodigal son responded to his sin. And I and agree how a Christian must character and how much how we need to have these responses. You, me, we ha need to have these responses if we truly follow Jesus when we sin. There are three R's. Three R's. The first, revulsion. The prodigal's turnaround began when he did what? When he saw the reality of his sin clearly. He'd been a fool. His behavior had been offensive to his father and how... It says how unfulfilling and disgusting the pleasures of sin were compared to the joys found in his father's house. Jesus said it this way, he came to himself. How many of you, moms and dads, grandparents, have children who've walked away from the Lord are you willing to pray the prayer that God does what it takes? that they come back to him. They might have 
to hit rock bottom. Jesus said he came to himself. And since we know that a genuine Christian is dead to sin and alive to Christ, when he does sin, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. They're not comfortable living in it. Believe me, sin is pleasurable for a season. But guilt, regret, disappointment, and shame always follow. If a true believer is snared in sin, they will eventually have a prodigal moment in the pigsty and hate their sin. The true Christian doesn't grow in his love for sin, but in time goes by, they'll hate it. The second R, repentance. When he came to his senses, excuse me, he gave up the old lifestyle and came home. He turned around, he left the place where he was at, and he walked back. That's a picture of repentance. Real repentance is more than than a feeling. It's more than feeling guilty. It's much more than guilt or worldly sorrow. It's not, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It is partly that. But it's more than admitting even what they were wrong. It's more than confessing guilt. It's actually turning around from it and going back to Christ or coming to Him the first time. It must include turning from sin and turning to Jesus in faith. There must be a resolve to follow and obey Christ. Christians must renounce and condemn their sinful behavior and commit themselves to wholly follow and obey the Savior. Remember, there are no white lines, there's no gray lines. It's all in, or you're out. The third R is reproof. No true child of God can ultimately prosper in sin. The father will not allow his child to become comfortable in their rebellion. Now think with me. The famine. Oh my goodness, the famine. A famine came. That's terrible. Was it? Was it? The famine helped the prodigal hit rock bottom. Only then did he come to his senses. The Lord will and does send difficulties, corrections, and seemingly unwelcome circumstances to correct His children, allowing them to repent and to come home. And again, I ask you, are you willing to pray the prayer that someone will see their need and come to Christ? The writer of Hebrews helps us here. Hebrews chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not his sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. For He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Can you see that God loves us too much to let us continue to wallow in the pigsty? To leave us drowning in our sin? We're all sinners. Each one of us have done more than enough to earn our share or earn our place in hell. And none of us will achieve holiness on our own on this side of eternity. Don't be deceived. A true Christian cannot continue in an unbroken trajectory of sin. There must be revulsion, repentance, and godly reproof evident in your life. So it comes down to this. Are you a Christian or a false professor? You know, there's no exact science in in answering that question. It's not about determining how many sins you've done in a day. I mean, I've only committed 10 today, so I'm good. 20, ooh, I I might be off. I better better start worrying. Or it might not be certain rituals that you do. Oh, you know, after every time I sin, I I read Psalm 51, and I'm good. Instead, it involves things that are much harder to discern and attitude of the heart and the intentions of your soul. And again, that's why we need brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's why we need faithful, a faithful church to honestly and prayerfully and lovingly speak truth to each one of us. Because we're not very good at diagnosing our own hearts. You know, we can believe that we've honestly shown regret and repentance when, in fact, we haven't. And there are others who are too hard on themselves, and they take every weakness and failure as evidence that they're just hypocrites and they truly aren't Christians. And that's not true either. Being involved in each other's lives can help both. That's part of sacrificially caring for one another. Today we walked a very tight line. The balance is that God is holy. He is holy. And He's also a God of mercy. On one hand, it's my fear for those who aren't genuine Christians and who are self-deceived that they're missing with their lifestyles of sin are saying about their profession of faith. If that's you, or if that's someone who you are close to, I hope that God's Word has convicted you and has urged you to lovingly confront that friend or loved one. On the other hand, I'm concerned about genuine believers who are struggling with sin, but will be tempted to believe that God is harsh and ready to whack you with a two-by-four across your head every time you fall. 
If that's you, remember the kindness that the Savior shows to all His people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you fall, not if you fall. When you fall, run to Him, not away from Him. I'll leave you with this. By calling yourself a Christian, you've put on the Christian jersey. Whose team are you playing for? Christ's or someone else? 